something else and they're just chasing that next new trend just to get some kind of money and pay the bills. Like there's no, where's your future? What are you doing? Welcome everyone. You are listening to the Gentleman's Atlas podcast, where we focus on giving you the tools and resources to become the hero of your story. I'm your host, Isaac. And today's honest and authentic conversation is exactly what you need to hear to live life on your terms. So without wasting any time, let's go ahead and get right into today's episode. Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back, gentlemen, to another episode on the Gentleman's Atlas podcast. Thank you all for tuning into today's episode. Today's going to be a guest interview where I bring someone on to have an open and honest and authentic conversation about self-improvement and about their area of expertise. Today's guest is someone that I want to bring on because one of the main things that we often realize is, again, this whole element of become the hero of your story. And story, to me, involves so many details that we don't always think about, right? It's the emotions, it's the feeling, it's the lessons, it's the friends, it's the family, it's the people that come along in our journey. And one of these elements that we have to learn how to do and how to appreciate just as we appreciate art is storytelling. Because through the power of words, through expressing ourselves in these ways, not only are we sharing our experiences and our journey with other people, but at the same time, we're also thinking in a different manner, right? We're, when we put things on the paper, when we write, when we tell a story, in our minds, we're really shifting the narrative and we're teaching ourselves exactly what it means to relive these experiences. So today's guest is someone that has been in the space of writing, who has talked to others about writing and who has written himself. And I want to bring on this guest because I want him and me to talk about this idea of storytelling, about self-improvement, about meeting others and how it can connect us, right? Stories connect people. So without further ado, let me bring on John. John, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Isaac. Um, lots of important things that you've already touched on. I'm excited to talk about you know, the benefits of, of writing in several different ways. Great, John. Well, I think the best way for us to get started today is to give the people a little bit about your backstory and how you got to where you are today. Absolutely. Uh, so my writing journey began about 15 years ago um, when I was a junior in college. Uh, my, my friend and I had, well, my friend had this idea that we should write a story about our lives in college because we thought it was a, a great story. Um, so I did, I wrote a screenplay. Um, it collected dust, never got any interest from literary agents or, or anything else. So I moved into, from there, I moved into fiction writing. And then I really moved into nonfiction ghost writing, which for anyone who doesn't know, ghost writing is someone someone with a story to tell uh, comes to me and uses my writing experience to write that story. So they tell me what their story is. Um, I compile it, put it together, and then their name goes on the cover. So I, in the past, I don't know, 10 years I've been doing that, have learned so much working with very successful, very smart business people um, who have advice to share, stories to tell, um, and different ways to, again, to, to help their readers. So I started my company officially last year, um, Visionary Literary. And we, that's basically what we do is we just, we help people, um, who are unaware, unsure of how to start the process, um, to get started and to go all the way from idea creation to publication and marketing. 
Great, man. Well, yeah, I think just to get started with this element of why do you think people, and I mean, I can understand the time aspect of it, you know, with the ghostwriting and stuff like that, and just the time it takes to write a book. What do you think are some of the other reasons why people might look for a ghostwriter when they're writing about themselves or about someone else? It's really about the the level of writing skill. So that's not to say that people who come to us are not skilled writers. It's just that writing in a way that engages and entertains creative writing is much different than we've learned throughout our schooling years in college. Um, it's certainly not English 101. It's much more to it. And also when you write, like you just said, it is very time consuming to write an entire book. I mean, it's anywhere from 40,000 to 70,000 words that you're writing. And it does take a lot to write that many words, but it's also very important to structure it in a way that walks the reader through in an engaging, educational, and entertaining format. To me, I also think about the aspect of, again, and I mentioned this in the intro and something that you probably can understand to and relate to this element that when we write, it's a form of thinking because we're expressing yeah. these things into words. And so as someone that's written for other people, right, the ghostwriting aspect, mm -hmm. do you feel that sometimes you have to place yourself in almost how they might think in order to write these things? Or do you just try to write it from your own perspective? No, I definitely, you have to, you have to be in that person's shoes because there, there's one, there's a test that we, uh, that we run initially after like writing a first draft and we tell our clients that it's the spouse test. So for, for the gentleman listening out there, if, if you are married and we, we ghost write for you, we hand that manuscript to your wife or to your girlfriend and we say, read this. Does it sound like if you, if, if your husband was to read this out loud in front of you, do the words that come off the page sound like the words that he would say out loud? Does it sound like his voice, his mannerisms, his tone? Um, all of that is very important. So one thing that we do is we take conversations that we listen to that are recorded as well as any audio transcripts um, and audio recordings, and we just listen to them. We come up with... You know, we find words that are commonly used. Um, some people have, admittedly, I I use a much smaller vocabulary than many other uh, CEOs, right? A lot of big adject adjectives are not really in my, um, not in my wheelhouse for the way that I like to write. I like to be very, very simplistic. Whereas someone who might be, say, an investment banker for 25 years, um, working on Wall Street, very, very... An intellectual might want to use a different vocabulary. So there are many different things um, that go about it. But one thing that you mentioned before at the beginning of that question was kind of the writing aspect and how it can be therapeutic. And you mentioned that at the opening too. One, it's important for us as it's important for any ghostwriter, right? Someone who's helping to make sure that the, the author the person who is writing the book, whose name will be on the cover, still gets the benefits of, of writing because there are many, many successful people who, whether they meditate or they journal, um, that writing aspect, getting everything down onto the paper, it is very therapeutic. So that's one thing that we can work collaboratively with an author to, to put together, to give them a strategy to where they can benefit, benefit from 
from writing, right, from those therapeutic advantages, um, while also allowing us to do the bulk of the work so that their schedule doesn't get interrupted. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I think about, too, with the whole aspect of, you know, putting yourself in their shoes, trying to understand how they would write, how they would talk, that sort of deal. Do you find that, you know, in your day to day experiences, because of the fact that you have to really be more intuitive and empathetic because of the way you write for other people, do you find that you're able to better read other people when it comes to like your day to day, like seeing how they act, like maybe what they like, maybe before they even tell you these things? Yeah. Yeah. So when it comes to like, if I was to read, for example, someone comes to us, they want to write a book and they say, I've written a series of blog posts online. I want to take that idea. Um, the ideas that kind of flow within these pieces, structure them and let's make a book out of it. So going in and reading, as long as they're the one who has written the piece, even if someone else, an editor, like did a final review and, and, and clarified some things, as long as they were the one who wrote the piece, it is, it's easy to see someone's personality, what they're trying to achieve, accomplish the message they're trying to give. For me, someone who is more of a seasoned reader, um, it's, it, it's a part of my job. I have to read again, just to, um, to make sure that I'm staying up to any kind of trends, but yeah, finding someone's personality within their words is easy. And, um, it's, it's fun too, because when you meet someone for the first time after reading, you can sort of hear the same language in their voice that you read inside of their work. To me, it also kind of begs this question of this whole idea of when people write, they have obviously, you know, you have all your writing styles, you have the way people express themselves, you have the personality that comes through paper. But to me, I think also when you're when when you're reading, as well as when you're writing, you have this element of, to me, I think a good ghostwriter. And again, I know you have more experience than I than I do in this. You have to have an element of self awareness, in my opinion, to be able to at least objectively step out of your own perspective to assume the lens of someone else's viewpoint, whether that's in ghostwriting or something else, just for the fact that I think people that don't have a certain level or degree of self-awareness, it's very difficult for them to step out that limited scope because they don't even understand their own scope to then go and view something from a completely different lens, which they would have to learn, not necessarily have inherently. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. Because that is something it's, it's tough when you, when you're writing on a topic that you know about, or you're writing for, you're writing on a topic that you've already ghostwritten a few books about before, it's tough to not chime in with your own input. When, when it comes to ghostwriting for somebody and writing their work, it's very important, like you said, to kind of stay in your lane, right? To not step outside of what the person has provided as far as information goes. And, um, and yeah, to just chime in on your own. So one, one example, whenever a political book comes out, um, politics is something that is so, so divisive, but when somebody writes a book, for instance, say a, a moderate conservative is the author of the book yet a far right-wing conservative is the ghostwriter, um, you have to make sure that you stay in that 
the author's lane and not start kind of steering into that, that far right. Um, and I'm just using that as an example. That's not, that's not the typical case, moderate conservative, anything like that. Just using it for, um, for visual, for anyone listening who wants to kind of put that story together, but it is, um, there is more to ghostwriting than just sitting down and churning out words. Yeah. And then I think even just bringing this whole ghostwriting aspect to the whole writing aspect, and then even the bigger scope, I think about, you know, there was a philosopher a while back, his name was Louis Althusser, and he had this idea about repressive state apparatuses and ideological state apparatuses. And so repressive, it's like, you know, things that objectify through force. So your military, your police, the systems that, you know, have to like forcibly enact certain laws. But the ideological ones was stuff like the church and the state and the education systems. And it was ways of you just controlled through means of information. And, you know, I even think about the American education system. And while we do tell history, we're very good at making history seem as if it's been the span of the entire United States. You know, like the 1750s was kind of like the beginning of time for the way it's it's almost described. And so to me, when we're thinking about bigger perspectives, especially those of someone else's, the way we've been taught, it's very easy to assume, again, this going back to this aspect of a limited scope of, of possibilities. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you can also argue what history is supposed to be, because there's been different philosophical debates over the aspect of, well, you know, is history based on the facts? Is history based on the historian? Because the historian is biased. And so they have the argument of like, well, can you really have a completely unbiased history? if you have biased people, because we're all biased to some degree. And right. so I think to my opinion, I think the best ghostwriters kind of realize this component that we all have some slight biases, no matter how much we want to not believe they're there. Just like we say, we might have vices, but our control is over how much we allow the vices to control us. And so back to this point about the best ghostwriters, in my opinion, are the ones that know how to use the bias to further assume the perspective that they're writing from. So instead of trying to like use bias to return to the ego, which 99% of us will do, they're using it that, you know, that small sliver of ghostwriters can use it to further assume their perspective. And then back to the tying too, because I mean, not a lot of people ghostwrite. While it's important to understand it, I think it's always going back to this principal system where it's like, just because we're talking about ghostwriting or writing or storytelling, even though a lot of those aspects translate into life, the fundamentals also translate into life, right? We can assume different biases in so many different things, and we can either have them as for you or against you feelings. And to me, it always goes back to the point of if you're self-aware enough to realize the things that affect you, you're going to be in a position where you can start learning how to control or at least manipulate what's already in your control to better serve you as well. Yeah. You, you make a very, very good point. And I think it, it's very hard for, for most people, like you said, to, to remove that bias. Um, woof. I mean, we, but it comes back to that kind of the, the biases lead to like a divisiveness. Um, there's, there's just a level of maturity I feel to empathizing and to seeing both sides of a perspective. And I think that they, like this, this whole show, like the gentleman Atlas, like being just be a, like being a sophisticated 
gentleman who is his calm, open-minded, you, you kind of display that whole nature in, in you in your, your voice, your tone, your, the way that you act. And I think it's very hard for, it's clear in society today that it's very hard for most of us to act in that manner to where you can just sit back and you can listen to both sides of a perspective of an argument and to calmly place yourself, empathize with both sides, right? To take what you know, and then to use what you know to kind of help maybe bring both sides together. So when it comes to what you were saying, using those biases to help the book, to help the writer, it can be, it can be a benefit when you, when we, when we write, we use Google docs and we write in there and we'll, you can, as a ghost writer, just provide some insight, ask them questions. Hey, you know, I saw this article, um, thought it might be helpful to include here, uh, little pieces, little bits and pieces like that. Again, using knowledge that we've learned from writing other books, maybe from writing a book or having a conversation with somebody who has an opposing viewpoint from what we're currently writing here. Do we want to add that so that the reader can get the benefit of both sides? Um, it is something that is very, very important. Just having that level-headedness about moving forward with the process and not having that bias uh, sit in your way as a roadblock. No, and it's a very compelling point that you bring up this fact that, you know, we have to be able to sit in almost a level of silence and discomfort to some degree to really just get the aspect of what's going on. And, you know, and you bring up the Google Docs and the writing and the suggestions example, and I think it's a great analogy to even put this up. To me, even back to the gentleman point, you know, if, you, if you're writing for someone else and you're writing from their perspective, you should never just input your own opinion into the writing itself. But a gentleman always knows that he can contribute more if need be, if asked for. So you put it in a suggestions block. You say, hey, this is how it is. But, you know, there's these points if you want to consider they're here. Right. And so then the person's able to tap into it. And so to me, it's this degree of, you know, you're always prepared for the situations that come to your hands. And preparedness doesn't come from knowledge because we don't we shouldn't believe that we know everything. So that that's a dangerous fallacy because then we really stop believing that we can learn things and that we can discover new things. But to me, preparedness comes from the confidence and adaptation, right? The confidence that you can handle this new piece. As a ghostwriter, you don't have the same pieces. You'll never write the same thing twice. No author writes the same thing twice. But there's a level of preparedness you can have that you know how to overcome the roadblocks and any challenges. Not that there won't be any, but that you have confidence in the strength that you'll be able to do so. And the second part that I also want to touch on to is the argument piece. This world, and especially this time period, the feelings and emotions, they've always been a big component. But right now, they've controlled so much of how we react to everything that goes on, so much that they even cloud a lot of value and principle systems. You know, you mentioned kind of this perspective of like, you're writing for a moderate conservative and you have a far right conservative writing it. You know, to me, politics is a good example, not even just the political viewpoints, just the way it's become. You know, you look at 50, 100 years ago, regardless of what people thought, they still respected that they had a leader of the country. And now we can't even do that. You know, one gets in, we demonize the other one. So to me, it's also this point of because we're allowing our feelings and these emotions to cloud what we believe in or what we stand for or what we believe something stands for, for the example of America, you know, we're not 
fulfilling these these full potentials and then back to the point of you know what you mentioned about empathy to me even and i say this personally um a gentleman shouldn't you know a gentleman never sympathizes he just empathizes right you don't to me pitying people puts them in a position where they're already at a disadvantage of you know of needing that sort of thing but then to my point it's not that they're not in difficult circumstances it's that there's hope for them and to put myself in their shoes and see how it can help them create an actual action plan that helps them get out. Because to me, there's also, if when people get sympathy, like if people receive sympathy and people receive this kind of emotion, they get justification for remaining where they are. But when people empathize with someone else, they almost have a lifeline back to a point of better return. And I always reference it with, you know, I've been in different places of the world and I've seen people that really come from nothing and they're still happy and they still go for more. So to me, it's like there's always a success story that we can maybe find because without it, you know, we can feel lost. But with this hope, with this idea of there's always a better future for everyone, as long as we're willing to do the necessary work to get there, we can really take our lives to a better level. And so to me, our responsibility doesn't lie in trying to tell people it's okay to remain where they are if they're not okay, but more so to tell them that it's okay not to be okay. It's just not okay to stay there and let's find a way for you to get to a better place. Uh, Everything you said, I love. You kind of hit the nail on the head there. Um, Putting yourself in someone else's shoes and kind of like you said, helping them realize that like this is okay. It's okay to feel this way, but let's kind of, you know, dust off your shoulders and move forward. Um, putting yourself in someone's shoes is, is much more effective for them than, you know, giving them a hug and a blanket and telling them to sit down and everything's going to be just fine. So very, very good point with regard to helping others. Cause that you said there, there's a, a large, I guess there's a trend that's created a large class of people who believe that gaining sympathy is an asset and it certainly isn't. He said it, it puts them in a, in a place where they're stuck and they, they kind of just crave that hug, that notion that it's okay to be, that it's okay to feel this way because I can, you know, get this attention, this justification, like you said, for being this way. So very, very valid point. And it keeps them there too. And that, and that's my thing that I think, because empathy also requires a level of thinking. Like you really have to take a second, you have to pause and you have to remove yourself from your world, put yourself in their world. And that's a whole hassle. Sympathy to me. And like, I'm not saying sympathize. I think the outcomes of sympathy are bad, but maybe your reasoning behind sympathizing isn't like, that's a different story to me. It's almost like this charity, like giving to charity, right? You know, instead of doing good, which takes the time you give to charity, not that there's anything wrong with either version. It's just that if you're not like, it requires a little less, not even a little less. It requires a degree lower of thinking because you kind of set it and forget it. You're like, Oh, you know, I'm sorry. This happened to you. I'm sorry. This, that, that, but again, the outcomes of it reinforce that wherever they are, it's okay. You know, someone loses their job and you're not, and you're just over there like, oh, you know, I'm sorry that happened. And then a month later, someone else says the same thing. 
this person's like, well, I just got validation from being let go. I don't really need to work. You know, people are coming up to me. They're coming in, checking up on me. They're bringing me food. But no one did that when I was working. But if I stay here, I keep getting this. If I go back to work, well, then I won't get any of this validation. So the psychological makeup of their minds going like, well, I'd rather have the validation. And then people bring me stuff than go to work, which I never really liked. And no one gives me anything. And so to me, it's like the outcomes that are created in these instances, like I give it like there's an example. And, you know, you can always argue that not everyone's the same. So I don't want to make a generalization for everybody. But to me, I see it very dangerous sometimes to give money to like homeless people because I would rather provide for them in another way, like give them food, give them clothing, pay for a hotel night, because I know that that would directly impact the needs that they would have. But, you know, if I, because I'm using empathy to, to understand the situation, because if I'm thinking from their perspective, okay, tonight's going to be really cold and my life sucked for the last six months. You know, I haven't, you know, people look at me like terrible. They look at me funny. I, you know, I haven't really showered very well. You know, I could pay for a hotel night with all the money I got from these past four days, or I could get enough to kind of take off the pain with cigarettes or, or alcohol. And that would last me a week, not a day. So the reasoning makes sense in their head. And now that I'm empathizing, I can understand that. But if I give them the direct benefit of what they need, I know that they're going to get that benefit and not just have to be forced to make that decision. Because when it comes to choices, we're only limited, we're limited by what we understand and what we've already seen. And which is why people don't always want to think about this kind of stuff. But it makes sense on this scale and on a macro scale. You know, I've had the example before where I don't know how I can't remember the exact percentage, but I know it's higher than 50% um, of lottery winners go broke within the first seven years of winning the money. And it's a lot of money that most people in their lifetime never get. And it's not because they didn't have enough money. It's because they never knew how to administer the money in the first place. So to me, a lot of times sympathy is almost like treating a symptom of something, but it never really addresses the root cause of anything. Yeah, good point. And good job using the the lottery analogy because that is, that's one, um, just financial education in general. You You touched on, kind of educational components a little bit ago. And that's something that um, is very unfortunate. But like you said, providing that that sympathy for that situation, if anyone really can sympathize at that point, I feel like um, if somebody won the lottery, they would get very little sympathy if they blew through the money. But just going based on our knowledge, what we can provide Again, is is there just a very important component to remember when you are heading into, say, for instance, what what you were saying, someone who gets laid off from their job. Um, yes, providing a little bit of sympathy is is okay. Bring them something, give them that support, but then also help in another way. Sit next to them, bring up Indeed, start looking at uh, the the next job they can have. Maybe it's a step up from their last career. Start looking at the positives. And how, how those positives can be rolled into the next situation that will inevitably come. Yeah, no, and, and to me, I also, I mean, I, I think we're on the same page. I think the way we see it's slightly different. To me, you can support without sympathizing as well. Like you should definitely support those kinds of people and, and understand that some things will take time and it takes different time for different people. Right. Um, but, you know, to the, to the example of like taking action, that's really where you can empathize. So 
you know, a common one that I've seen um, happening with a lot of people nowadays, at least how it's been spread, is the whole thing with like the breakups. And then you got a group of guy friends and then they're like, all right, you're going to come work out with us. And so to me, even though like sometimes you can kind of have like the wrong reasons for going to like start working out, I think at some point it switches. But I think that's one of the better reasons, like one of the better ways to help someone. It's like, well, you went through a breakup. Let's not just sit like, let me not just leave you sitting here on the floor looking at pictures of your ex. Like, no, like, let's go work out. I don't care how you feel. We're going to go work out. And then you just give that. And so maybe they don't see it as support at the moment, but over time, like they're going to build themselves up and they're going to have immense gratitude and they're going to be better for it. And that to me is the biggest part is that they're better for it. And now this is where you get to the component of where do you draw the line of how do I know what's best for someone? Because a lot of times people always talk about like the ethics of like, well, you might think it's best for them, but how do we know that's best for them? And parents run into this a lot of times too, where they think they know what's best for the kid. But sometimes they only know what's best for what they would have done yeah. should they had should they had raised themselves. But and this happens a lot with like parents that want their kids to make like a high paying career, like a doctor or a lawyer, because they think that that's the only way to make it. Right. So and so they're so close off on this limited perspective that they can't they close themselves off to potentially empathizing with their kid over what they want to do. So they can't actually help them in the way that's most beneficial. Um, but back to this whole point of just kind of seeing it from their lens, you know, we have to understand that you can help someone and you can empathize and you can give them the resources. And to me, the line honestly is drawn where you just don't do the change for them. You know, I have this saying, we can't change people, right? And we can't help people that don't want to be helped. So to me, it's always like, you know, I'd rather dedicate my time to people that are willing to accept what I have to give them, they're valuing it and they actually implement it. Because in two reasons is one, I can't, I'm just not going to waste my time on people that don't want to hear the message. Because to me, that takes away my time from people that could benefit from the message. And then two, you know, to me, I value what I have to say, because I have like, there's a lot of things that I work on. So for me, my time is valuable. So to me, if I'm talking to someone that really just doesn't care, or doesn't want to put in the time or effort to use what I have to give them, to me, it devalues what I have to say. And so, again, in my mind, I'm always thinking, am I giving the right resources to the right people? And even just to segue this really quick to the business aspect, to some, to anyone that wants to run their own business, already runs their own business, you always have to get the matter of, there's certain things that are going to give you a return on investment, and there's certain things that aren't going to matter. And especially when you're even analyzing like target markets and who you want to sell to, selling to everyone sells to no one, right? There's some people that could care about your product, that would want to buy your product, that would love your product. And there's some people that genuinely, they have no need for your product. And then this is also, I think, a good segue for us to talk about the whole aspect of storytelling, especially as it comes to building a personal brand as well as a business. Because to me, the storytelling aspect goes back to the whole point of the business of people. Yes, your product might be great or your service might be great, but people buy into people. So if people don't really know what they're buying into, or there's not a story or this, this connection behind whatever someone's selling and who they are as a person, to me, you're always, you're definitely leaving stuff on the table, especially when it comes to more specialized products. Yeah. Yeah. So that storytelling you know, for, for your brand or for your company is very important. Two reasons. Um, 
one is because of the money, right? So for instance, for us, for any high ticket item, we're charging five to six figures for our services, depending on the level of support that someone needs that no one's going to turn over that kind of money to somebody that they don't feel a connection to. Um, and then two is just because they're, every market is flooded. Um, so many new businesses are popping up. Technology makes it easier for people to start businesses. So the competition for every business, um, is high. So it is very, very important to tell that story. And the story that I told at the opening was a very brief version of, you know, my friend, my friend and I sitting on the step at college. And he says, we should write a book about our lives like that. That initial point, one thing for anyone listening who, who maybe struggles or will struggle with that storytelling component for their business, there's a book. Um, I'm not associated with the author, but I just got done reading it. It's called Stories That Stick. It's by the author is Kendra Hall. Um, it's excellent. It's an excellent guide to kind of walk you through the step, the steps for telling your business story and then the benefits to having a story that you continue to tell, whether you're on podcast or you're on stage speaking um, or you're just speaking with prospective clients. But the storytelling component is important because there is a human connection. Um, there's, there's a human connection, human component there. People want to work. They, they don't want to work with a brand. They want to work with a person. And they want to know that that person cares enough about what they do and that they're knowledgeable enough in what they do to provide the future benefits for the service. Yeah. And even to that example that you were mentioning about, you know, the, the stories that people tell, especially about the personal brand, yeah. I think if people look closely enough, they'll find with people that have really taken the time to work on personal brand. If you hear them, speeches, podcasts, public, like just whenever they're speaking and they have to share their story, they have a very good storytelling aspect of an elevator pitch. You know, they'll tell you a story that changed them, that put them on a certain path. And you'll hear it and it's almost word for word, but it's not scripted. And the reason it works this way is because people are very, the, the people that can manage their personal brand, again, it always comes back to this level of self-awareness, but they're able to curate this whole journey and really weave something that brings people in. And people often mistake that like these people are like, like snake oil salesmen and that they're just trying to sell you something or they're, they're these marketing gurus and stuff like this. And they just, they just care about, you know, bringing in more money for their business. But these kinds of people genuinely want to help people or most of them, I'm not gonna sell them. And they do this by bringing you in, right there. It's like, if you know, you have something good to sell, why not sell it to the most amount of people? So when people genuinely believe in a good product and they believe in themselves they're kind of combining these aspects so people can really get to know the story. They really get to know this stuff. Because again, a lot of times people have a hard time trusting. So they don't really know whether or not to trust this person, especially what you mentioned. Like it's hard, like you don't buy something that costs five, six figures if you don't trust the person. Because like, unless like no one's going to really do that unless you really just, I mean, I'm not even going to explain the kind of person <laughs> that would do that. But my point is, is that if you as an individual genuinely believe in yourself and what you're selling and you think it's beneficial or you feel it's beneficial, then you're saying in your head, why not sell this to the most amount of people that I can help? 
And so to me, it's also this aspect of you have to take that level so seriously that you have to build a personal brand, right? You have to build the company's brand around it. And the best brands do this the best way. You know, we all know some of the great brands because of how they brand themselves. Nike branded themselves by selling to athletes, by selling stories, by selling dreams, right? You wanted to be the guy that got into the court wearing Nikes. You wanted to be the guy that was photographer and, you know, dunking in the air or playing the sport because that's what they sold to, right? They sold you the story. They might have good quality. I don't doubt it. I mean, I, I wear Nikes and I like the quality, but I didn't hear about Nike because someone told me, oh man, those shoes, you know, the way that it supports your ankle. No one hears it that way. They hear about the story. They're like, man, do you see that new Nike commercial? Do you see who was wearing those Nikes there? And then, you know, with Apple, people don't tell me the iPhone because, you know, the, the A15 or A16 is 40% faster than the Samsung. But people don't talk about it that way. They're yeah. like, man, you know, you got you got green bubbles on your text messages, man. What's going on here? Like, oh, your, your photos are kind of like low quality. Like, it's these things that come out of it because it's a story. Like, e Apple sells an ecosystem. Nike sells a dream. IBM when I mean it's still around but like IBM when it was at its peak sold the future of technology. And so to me these great brands, these great companies, they're going to tell you these great stories. And like even me personally when I buy into companies, I buy into companies that I believe will last. I buy into companies that you can look up their values. So to me, I don't just go to a random platform and I just buy like when I eat, like when I buy clothes, when I buy my equipment, I only buy from certain companies. Like I mean, I have I use Notion, but I have a, like I have a list. I have a complete kind of database of essential products. And I might have 40 essential products and they'll all be from the exact same companies cuz I just believe in the company. I don't need to search around for the best deal. I buy with the best ones. I don't bank with 20 different banks to maximize my interest rates. I bank with two banks because I believe in the banks. And so to me, it comes to this question of the way you get to a level of self-awareness, in my opinion, whether it's in a business aspect or a personal aspect, is you have to be able to cut things out. Because if you're holding on to so many things, you only have a dedicated pool of willpower. You only have a dedicated power of focus. You really only have a dedicated ability to process things. And so just like a computer, if you throw a hundred different tasks at a computer or a processor, you're going to be using all of its bandwidth and it's not going to be able to maximize its utilization. But if you only have a certain amount of things you're focusing on, right? If you only have one goal you're working on instead of 50 goals you're working on, if you only have one conversation you're working on instead of me trying to type something while I'm talking to you, while I'm doing this, while I'm on my phone. Well, this is going to be my 100%, not this is my 25% because I'm doing everything else. And you can only get that by starting to realize that life becomes more when you have less, not when you have more. All right. So that, that's a very good point. And going back to combining Nike with the storytelling component. There's uh for anyone I had another book suggestion. I read too much, but uh Shoe Dog by Phil Knight is absolutely incredible. It's a memoir of Phil Knight, his story of Nike's upbringing. And again, so many so so many people buy so many people think that companies are just rise overnight, like Nike just became great, but 
that story tells that it was like a decade before Nike's Nike was even the company it, it remotely is today. But Nike and Phil Knight started, like you said before too, like that you have to to sell to a niche component. You can't try to sell to everyone. So Nike tried to get athletes. They wanted shoes and their Nike swoosh on athletes' feet so that someone like you, Isaac, like you said, wants to buy those Nikes. Because you don't care about ankle support. You care that they're Nikes and that this you know athlete is wearing them and that they trust those shoes so you can trust those shoes. When it comes to running a business, again, it's the niches lead to riches. So even for, so for, for us, like we and I have been, I've been writing and publishing for 15 years. I, I know the industry inside and out. I can help anyone. I can help fiction authors. I can help short story uh, authors. I can, but, but what we do, our niche is we go to nonfiction authors, people who say CEOs or own their own businesses who get between five to $8 million um, annual revenue each year. That's our niche, but we can help other people. And we do that in other ways. One thing you keep talking about is time. Time is crucial. We're all about, you know, time is the one asset you never get back. So what we can do to monetize without using too much of our time is that we, we have an online course. It's a, you know, a little bit of time to make up front, but after that, it's passive. Not only is it passive for us, but it helps those people that we're not able to spend our time on. Fiction authors who can't afford five figures because they won't get the ROI because they don't have the platform that you know a CEO of a $10 million company has. They're, we're working on a piece of software too that also helps for like a lower level, but they're, it just it all goes back to that niches lead to riches. You have to start with your with your niche, your target target audience, and then you can work out and expand from there. And Nike, as you'll read in, in Shoe Dog, if you read it, um, they did that. They knew their target. They went to athletes, and their shoes became the most popular among athletes and non-athletes um, all over the world. You know, I love that you bring up the example of Nike. It wasn't always what it is today because I always love when I hear people talk about overnight success because as someone that creates content, and you can know this too from, from being a business owner and, and writing, we all know that if you, if you create things, you know that nothing is an overnight success. So yeah. you'll love to hear people say it because it's cool to see someone rewarded because you know like two, three, even 10 years, man, where it's going into the whole back end and only it took one partnership or one this or one that or one you know pedestal and everything changed yeah but they had no idea when it was going to happen you know and like yep. so a lot of times people always look at companies as if they were always that way but they don't look at amazon when it was jeff bezos in his office filled with paperwork or zuckerberg in college or you talk about you know steve jobs in his, in his garage because to me people always want to think of things as oh it just happened because that's what they want to believe, because that's what people want for themselves. They just want things to magically happen. You know, they walk in one day and they get the promotion and a 50% raise and that new salary and the new job and the company car, because they just want these things to be real. And so a lot of times, you know, we have to get to this reality of when things happen, when luck, so to speak, strikes, it's because they had been putting in the work for a long time. And now the opportunity came along. You know, to me, luck is, is an equation of opportunity times the times the work. So you can have the opportunity of a lifetime, 
but opportunity of a lifetime multiplied by zero is still zero. So to me, it's always like, you got to keep working and you don't know when it's going to pay off. And there's sometimes you do need to cut your losses, but that's just a miscalculation of new knowledge, not necessarily you giving up on a project. But the moral of the story is that these companies kept going after it. And again, they, you know, it's this whole argument of like, when you niche down and people hear this a lot in business, but it applies in personal life, it's almost like drilling. Like people, when you don't niche down, you're like trying to drill down an entire wall. So to me, it takes a while. But if you drill in a specific point, especially one that might be a little more weak and easier to cave, obviously, it's going to take less time to drill one portion of a wall than an entire wall. And when you want to break through into something, right, it's called the spearhead for a reason, because you're just throwing yourself in there and you're lancing yourself in there. And then you can expand and then you can build out. And it's funny because I'll give an example too. people don't obviously know a lot about how Netflix started, especially because Netflix has a younger demographic now um, with the newer generation. But when they started, you know, they had late fees like Blockbuster did, you know, they had that they were trying to compete directly and they couldn't because people left Blockbuster for the reasons that Netflix changed. And the Netflix actually started with indie movies. So they never had the big hits. They never had the huge movie hits. They had like these, you know, crazy stories of just like smaller movies, things that no one ever saw before. And they had that niche and they really weren't hitting much of Blockbuster's niche. And they also took a chance on DVDs, which a lot of people didn't know. But when Netflix started doing the DVD business of mailing out DVDs, there was only CD players in like 5% of households the year they started. So imagine being a company and you're targeting something that only exists in 5% of households. So that like that can be a very big risk investment. But they took a chance not on the present, but on the future. Right. And what happened the next year, 13%. And then I think over, like within a three-year span, four-year span, it went from like 5% to 87% of households had CDs in America. So they just completely capitalized a new market off starting in a niche. And so the point that I bring back just to tie it all together is that whether it's in business or in our personal life, when we get specific in something, it's not that we can't do other things. It's that we're being so effective in one thing that it just starts bleeding out. Like you mentioned with the course too, you know, one aspect is you focusing on a niche or you can help that niche to the best of your ability and the business's ability. And then other people are able to benefit what you've learned from working with them by taking the course. But then there's a twofold aspect. If someone gets your course or someone else's course that does a good job as well, to me, it's not, oh, I'm going to buy his course and his course and his course and his course. No, let me just... I trust this guy. He's gotten results. He's done things with the people that he said he was going to do it with, right? He's not just some guru trying to make money from the course. Like, no, he works with these people. Let me take his course and let me double down on his course. Let me watch it. Let me do it. Let me take it twice. And let me learn from one specific thing. Because people, and an example is like investing, people always just want to start diversifying from the bat. They want to take everything and just spin it so thin so they have to so they can like technically say they cut their losses in this sort of deal but it's like if you only invest a thousand dollars like yeah and like it can be a, a decent sum to you but if you spread it across a hundred different companies you know you're really buying such marginal things that even if the changes go up you're not making that much you're not like so you, so to me it's like you really got to find a winner you got to take confidence in the winner and you got to start putting money behind more heavy hitters and to me, it's just a huge thing, whether it's in business or personal. Yeah, very. you make very good points there. And 
to to take the risk. Um, going back to what you said about <clears throat> overnight success, um, Jeff Bezos, even not just like when you when you start finding success, which Amazon did when they IPO'd, and I think it was ninety seven, um, but in after the dot com bubble hit and their stock plummeted, I don't know eighty or eighty five or something like that percent. I don't know the exact number. Yep. His like his letter to shareholders that year started out, ouch. But he didn't shut down the business. He didn't he didn't panic. He knew, like you were saying with Netflix, he knew the future. He understood that the future was the internet. And he kept pushing forward. And now look at him today. Again, and that goes back to people saying that, you know, he's an overnight success. He doesn't deserve his money, XYZ. Um, but it's just it's again that risk factor. You have to take risks. You have to be confident in those risks the way he was. He didn't start out his shareholder letter with, oh my God, what are we going to do? Somebody help me. He just said, ouch, this hurts. This is what we're going to do moving forward. Um, and then the the Netflix and Blockbuster was funny for anyone who's listening and who may not know, but um, Netflix tried to be acquired by Blockbuster and was laughed out of the room because uh, Blockbuster did not believe in what next Netflix was trying to do. Um, for the future. And now, now we see that, you know, who got the last laugh. Yeah. I mean, so, that, that was a, that was a $50 million deal. And you imagine, you imagine if they would have done that, you know, with yeah. Blackbird's current valuation and the Netflix's current valuation. I mean, yep. Yeah. It would have been, uh, it would have been much different, but it just goes to show like you, when you, when you do things, um, I mean with us too, and our company and just my freelance career before that, People always, and freelancing and, 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 you know, entrepreneurship is becoming more popular. Um, and again, just because of its ease, you can easily start a company um, today. But but people still look at you like, why? Um, people have always looked at me like, why? When I was freelancing, there'd be some, I would go four or five months sometimes without without clients responding back and that, I wasn't getting paid while they weren't getting back to me. So, you know, financial struggles, obviously. And people would ask me like, why, why don't you just get a steady job? Why don't you get something with benefits and X, Y, Z? Um, you have to just believe in yourself and what you're doing. Be confident. Um, I, I knew what I was doing. I, you know, just let the negativity go in one ear and out the other. Know that what's coming in the future is, you know, is positive. You're looking up. Things have you know looked up for for me for us for our company, but I still know that even though we're on an upward trajectory, things like Jeff Bezos and the dot com bubble can come plummeting at any point, and you need to be aware of what the future holds. For instance, anyone who's listening now, last week or the week before, Open A Open AI released that Chat GPT. Isaac, I don't know if you. Um, came across it, but it is absolutely insane. And it's something that could very, very easily take away the work of writers in the future. Um, and, and so we need to be on top of that. If we want to still be a company in the next three to five years, we have to find a way not to, not to have people sympathize with us and say, oh, poor writers, they're going to be put out of work. But how we can take what we know, research what is going, what is coming down the pipeline and be prepared for the inevitable switch. So that's important. Yeah. I mean, I got, I got my email. I'm off the wait list, man. Um, <laughs> but 
No, no, you're right. And I think just even in, in personal sense and business sense, like, I mean, like people, people think they're two different worlds and they are, but they have so many parallels. Like this, this idea of pivoting both in personal and business, like it's how we grow to the next level. And I always have this saying, what got you to where you are today isn't what's going to get you to the next level. And it's something that I look at every single day because I'm always trying to get to the next level every single day. I want to be better. I want to figure out what I need to do to take it to the next level. And so instead of thinking in the terms that got me to where I am today, I'm thinking, no, how do I think from Isaac from tomorrow, from the Isaac from six months from now, what does he look like? What is he doing? And based on what he's doing, I'm trying to get his mindset of what he's thinking. How did he get there from here? And so to me, that's been a large thing of my growth. But back to your point, you know, you got to pivot. And so in this example, it's a great example we could talk about for a second, you know, okay, AI writing's coming and AI has been looked at as the future for a while, but now it's really starting to take some form, especially in writing sense. So if you're talking about a software that can write an article in under two minutes, when it takes a writer 30 minutes to two hours, you're not, you don't need to compete with that you need to tap into it, right? It's the right. whole argument of instead of pushing the boulder that's already rolling downhill, what if you got on the other side of it? What if you just tied a rope to it behind it and you just kind of let it pull you along? So then you ask yourself the question of how do I tap into it? You know, do I either train writers how they can get jobs at companies so they can help write the AI with the way they think? Do I use the AI to work for clients so I can reduce cost on my end because I don't need personnel to write it, but I can use the AI Right. So it's like it's different ways you can pivot. And depending on your interest, whether it's profitability, whether it's, you know, maybe you have a lot of friends that are employed or you just really care about your teams and maybe you want to keep those jobs, you have different ways of pivoting based on how you want to keep your interest. So in the personal sense, too, you're also looking at, okay, times are changing. How do I pivot? Right. Things are more online. Well, maybe I can, you know, use that to get an online job so I can be a little more flexible. Because, like, again, you mentioned this whole thing with freelance now. And what happens is we always have these trends, right? You had the the Amazon FBA, you had the drop shipping on Shopify, and you had the whole thing about buying products from Alibaba and doing this stuff. And people are always looking for a quick fix. But then you like people only hear the people that are either doing well or that maybe haven't even done that well themselves, but they're very good at trying to sell a course. So they make money from selling the course, but they've really only made like a thousand bucks from drop shipping yeah. products. But the point with that is people don't always see the masses. People see the people that make it work and they're like, oh, that could be me. But it takes us, it takes a degree of even just realism to realize that you can make it to that sort of degree. And it's not to put people down, but if you're not able to see things as they are, when times get tough, that's when you quit. When you're not someone like Jeff Bezos, who's a visionary and sees the future that he wants to have in the world, when your stock plummets that much, you call it quits because that's what a normal person does. And there's a reason why he's where he's at and he's not normal. People don't, people talk about, and this is the whole thing about hypocrisy too. People talk about Jeff Bezos and like, he shouldn't have that much money. He shouldn't be so rich. There's people that are just fortunate. And I'm like, but you keep buying things from a company that he makes his money from. Right. And they're like, yeah, yeah, but it's not the same thing. I'm like, no, it is the same thing. You have millions of people that argue that someone should have so much money and they buy from the same company. You're not going to boycott it because you're just like to you, it just wouldn't make sense. Right. And so it's always this argument of there's certain things people can do to not live by the normal rules, right? 
And, you know, and I think this is funny, too, because a gentleman realizes this. A gentleman lives by a set of rules until he doesn't, and he lives by a code. Because what happens is there's a system, and then you create your own system, right? You, you learn from something, and then you create your own of it. But it always starts, and it's so important that I say this, too. It always starts with self-awareness. You got to know who you are, and you got to know what you want. Because if you don't, you're not going to live a life that's meaningful to you. You know, this whole thing that you mentioned with people doing the freelance stuff, and even just to throw a stat out there, like with podcasters, there's a lot of people that want to start a podcast. I think it's 80% of podcasters don't make it past their first seven episodes. And 80% of podcasters after that 80% don't make it past 21 episodes. So people that, don't, that aren't good at math, it's not 160%, it's 80% of the new 20% that don't make it. But that's like, that's a huge cutoff. Yeah. And we still have millions of podcasts going on. So that's like, that's a perspective that people should, should definitely put into mind because it, that's what reality is. Right. And with the freelance business stuff, people, everyone loves to be a freelancer until they realize that you might go months without income. Or that if you get sick, you got nothing. You got no paid leave off. You got no sick days. You don't got no insurance plan by a company anymore. Like you're on your own, yep. right? So it's very easy for the good times to people jump on these these wagons of, of what's going on or what's trending. But you'll you'll figure out real quick that something's either for you, not for you, or you're going to have to stick through it when things go bad. Yeah. Yeah, totally, totally agree. And that self-awareness aspect is so important. You have to, for, for the people, like you were mentioning, there are, there are people who, you know, one year they're doing drop shipping and then the next they're doing something else. And they're just chasing that next new trend just to get some kind of money and pay the bills. Like there's no, where's your future? What are you doing other than making money to pay your bills? What are you doing to, to impact the future? Right? Like what, what are you learning? If you're not learning something and if you're not constantly growing, like you said, I want the Isaac of six months from now, where is he? What's he doing? How did he get there? If you're just living day to day, you could, you could probably make a, a quick buck turning, you know, whatever new trend is coming. But just when it comes to the future, that's something maybe that I've learned in ghostwriting for, for people who have created success and want to share you know, the path that they created for others so that others can avoid the common mistakes. Um, maybe I've learned it and taken it from them, but I just, I feel like leaving a lasting impact on the future for gentlemen, especially if you, you have to leave an impact for your kids, for your family, give them, give them a head start, right? If you're, if you're jumping from the next new trend every year to year, what are they learning from you? They're learning that, you know, dad does whatever it takes to, just pay the bills this month. And then what happens next? Like be passionate about what you do. Follow something, be, I don't know, be a man about it. Just take ownership. If you're, if you're struggling, pivot, find a way. But I think that just leaving a lasting impact and a message for the people who know you, the people who follow you, the people who look up to you um, is, is critical. Yeah. And even to your point too, and again, of course, it's always back to the self-awareness piece. You know, you got to know what you're, what you're looking to leave behind. And when you yeah. put things into perspective of legacy, 
certain things can change. If you want a certain kind of career, if you want to leave behind a career that you did very well, well, then you're going to make sure that you need to stay in that industry because a good career means you can't be pivoting jobs every three months. Now, if you really want to leave an impact with legacy, with your kids, with family being a key component of it, then maybe you are someone that might switch jobs because you're doing whatever it takes to provide for your family to make sure your kid can play in Little League Baseball or that he can play on his little soccer team or can try out for the football team and have the nice equipment or the nice shoes because that's what matters to you. And so, like, for example, if family is one of your big things, and not that anyone can't value family, but if, like, family is one of your key legacy components that you're trying to leave and you want to provide as much as possible and you already have kids... Going freelance and entrepreneur is a very big risk that goes directly against the other one because you're, you're like, there's a very big risk component and now you have a lot to lose. And so it's not that you shouldn't take it. It's that you have to put it in the perspective of if I want to provide the most for my kids, this risk will really increase or it will really hurt my, might hurt my ability to do so. In that case, you might want to look at something else. Or if you're looking at family in terms of time, I don't care what anyone tells you. Being an entrepreneur is not less than a nine to five. I don't know where that came from. I don't know who said that passive income isn't passive income either. Like you got to like things can make money while you're not directly working, but that doesn't make it easier than normal hours. You know, like any entrepreneur will tell you that they do not work eight hours on a typical day. I promise you, I don't work eight hours on a typical day. Never. Um, Yeah. So my thing is, is that if that's, if your thing is spending time with family, and you want to be an entrepreneur, you're really going to be putting way more time into the business. And now you're also taking responsibility for the business and everyone that works in the business. And that's going to take away your time and your bandwidth to spend with time with family. On the yeah. flip side, if you have a job that you find meaningful, right? People confuse happiness with meaning. You should find a job meaningful. Passion is a pa- Passion to me is a luxury that some people can afford to get. But to me, everyone has an obligation to find a meaningful job. If you work a job that's meaningful and you work, you know, you're nine to five, which is respectable. I don't know why anyone trashes it nowadays. Well, I do know why people would say it. But to me, there's nothing wrong about working a nine to five. Um, You do that. You get your money. You work for the company. You have your benefits. You have your health care. And then you go home and you can spend more time with your family. And you don't have to worry about the lights going off the next day because it's not your responsibility. You don't got to worry about the staff because it's not your responsibility. And if you're in a manager, then you worry about your staff. But the point is, is that you're taking more responsibility off your shoulders to spend more time and put more responsibility with the things that you value. But if you do that and your value, like if you take this time to spend with your family and then your values is, I want to create my own company. I want to take a company public. I want to be recognized. I want to be written down in the books. Well, then you might have that quality time with your family, but you'll never get to that goal. So to me, it's like, there's always a disconnect because people, again, they're always thinking about the day-to-day. You should be focusing on the day-to-day, but you should be on the trajectory of where you want to go, right? To me, there's always this analogy that I like to use. It's called the pilot, the plane, and the engineer. Your pilot, you should only be spending 10% of your time in the pilot. And the pilot is direction. Where am I trying to go? Let me look at the big picture. Let me figure out the, you know, where I want to be landing. Where, where is my end destination? That's the pilot. So you go back to your pilot to make sure you're on the right course or if you need a course adjust or if you need to fix the course because you're off course. The engineer is another 
what's going wrong? What, what's bad about my systems? Where am I not being effective enough? Where can I cut out? So this is about, you know, making sure the plane's good, making sure the plane doesn't have any problems so it can keep going along. But 80% of the time you're in the plane, you're in the plane, you're focusing on the present, you're enjoying the ride. Because you don't get to go back once you land. This is a one-way trip. So we just go. And so many people are so worried about so many things that as the plane starts to descend into our final places, we look back and we're like, man, we just, we were so anxious and worried the whole time. We didn't even realize that the journey was fun, you know, that we did the barrel rolls, that we had the turbulence, that we had the moments where we were up near the sun, you know? So to me, there's a beauty in the process, but you can only appreciate it, one, if you're self-aware enough, but two, if you actually know where you're trying to go. Yeah, that is, um, that's really important. And I will be as, as candid as possible here, but that's something that I, I totally struggle with. I'm, I'm in the cockpit with the pilot 80% of the time because I'm always, um, and like, I have a wife and I have two kids and luckily the business is, you know, a remote business. We run it from home so I can, I can, you know, dip out and, and play with my kids for an hour or two, but then I'm back in here. Um, but that's something that I honestly, it's funny that you mentioned that now, because in the last week or two, as the holidays are approaching, as you know, my kids are, are, are getting older and I'm not realizing it, family comes into town and they tell us how old the kids are looking and how much older they're getting. And I, I realize that I spend too much time focusing on the business. Where are we going? What's next? How do we, again, going back to the AI thing, like how do, how do I make sure that this is a business in three years. And then when random Slack messages come in, because you know I don't work nine to five, neither does the, the sales team. They're seven days a week also. So when they're slacking me or calling and it's just, um, that's something that I don't know how others are, any listeners, but if you're running a company and you're finding it very, very hard to send, spend 80% of the time as a passenger, just enjoying the ride. Um, at, you're not alone. I, I, I personally need to, um, to, you know, get back into, uh, into spending more time as a passenger and enjoying it with family. But again, it is, it's a double-edged sword. It's really tough. Like you, obviously you, you, you want to spend time with your family. You want to, take those breaks, those mental breaks that you need, you know, go work out midday to, to blow off some steam. Um, but at the same time, you just feel like every second that you're not working on the business or doing something to provide value to the business, it's stagnant and a stagnant business is a dying business. So whirlwind of thoughts there, but for any, anyone who's, uh, wants to kind of be a part of your analogy and your calculations there, um, know that it, it is kind of tough, but it is doable. Absolutely, man. This has been, this has been a great conversation. I think for sure, you know, just to, to even think about some of the things we've been talking about, you, you gotta put priority and you have to put conscious emphasis on the things that matter. Because to me, again, and people like you and me always struggle with the balance aspect in terms of balance being relative and that sort of deal. But to me, it's always like, if you care about your family, like, I mean, obviously everyone cares about their family. Like if you really care about spending time with your family and you really care about your business, then 
you're looking at this whole degree of, well, let me cut out the excess so that way I can spend time what matters most. You know what I'm saying? So you don't have 20 different projects going on. You're like, I have my business, I have my family, and then maybe I like to, you know, play pickup soccer on the weekend. So I have that. And so instead of like having all these things that you're worrying about go to, like, no, you narrow down and you're able to spend and concentrate your time on what matters most. And then you don't have to worry about trade-offs because you already sacrificed so much more that you can actually afford to spend all this time on different things. But, you know, as we wrap up, where can people find you at as well as what's your closing message for the episode? Um, so th- the closing message is, again, there, there's been so much insight here. Uh, obviously, all of your episodes are, are chock full of okay, just that calm, very calm approach that you have to providing this sort of insight to be self-aware and to find the best ways to move forward and to make progress in your life. So again, this was an excellent conversation. So glad that you had me on for anyone who wants, for anyone who wants to write their own book, who thinks that they can share information that is impactful and helpful. Obviously our website is visionaryliterary.com, but if you go to visionaryliterary.com backslash free book, um, I wrote a book that basically encompasses our whole entire process from writing to publishing and, and promoting. So on that link, the book is free. It's a PDF version. Um, if you feel like you can help people, if you feel like a book that you would write could be beneficial, please just go there um, and, and feel free to read it and take any kind of insight that you can. If I'm also on LinkedIn and Twitter, which is where I'm most active. So on Twitter, it's at John underscore Feldman underscore. Um, but other than that, again, just the, uh, the free book link and, and Twitter. Sounds good, man. Well, again, thank you for your time. And as I wrap up, I'm just going to tie it back to this, to this one piece that I always think about when I think about us moving in life direction. And it's that there's been things that have existed in time long before humans ever did. And there's going to be things that exist in time long after humans are gone. And if we're talking about millions and billions of years, and we're so caught up in these little tiny moments that we let ruin our day, we have to remember that there's always a bigger picture in play. And even if we have a bad day, or a bad week, a bad month, even a bad year, in the span of everything, it isn't over yet and we have so much more to give whether you're an 18 year old about to start college whether you're 25 stepping into the world or being in the world for the first couple of years whether you're 45 and you're figuring out what you want to do with the rest of your life now that you have a family now that you've worked now that you've been in many different places whether you're 65 and now you're looking to see whether you want how you want to leave your legacy how you want to spend the rest of your years we all have time but don't confuse the time with places to be complacent the reason we have time is because it's a currency but unlike money it's a currency that goes away you spend it or you don't spend it it doesn't matter to time but to you it means everything because that's the only thing we are going to have as a measure so it's always important for us to realize that the moment to live is now That doesn't mean be reckless and stupid with our decision, but it means that we need to take full advantage of everything that comes our way. And the best we can do that 
is by focusing and doubling down on our winners and cutting out the losers. Gentlemen, you know, we close it off here and make sure you check out the resources that have been provided. Check out everything that John does. Wink it, quisa, wink it. He conquers who conquers himself. That's all for today's episode on the Gentleman's Atlas podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and share this episode with someone who needs to hear this message. If you are serious about taking your life to the next level, visit our website, www.thegentlemansatlas.com for all our services, previous content, and full episode transcripts. We greatly appreciate your support and we're excited to see you in the next episode.